Welcome to the Tournament of Everything, a show where we compare the entirety of the universe to the entirety of the universe again and figure out which entirety we think is entirely the best. That's right. And we do so by writing the names of those things in syrup upon a pancake, an infinite stack of pancakes shall we establish, and then we will begin eating those pancakes one by one. And when we get to the point where we can no longer eat pancakes and we're sick to our stomachs, the one that we can no longer eat is going to be the victor. And move on to the next round of... You know, listening to the rules for this week, I got really hungry, and then really nauseous, and then really dizzy, and then kind of tired. And then I remembered, we're not going to do any of that. We're actually going to pick two random pages off Wikipedia live on the show here, pitting those things against each other, talking about them, comparing them, figuring out what's what, and figuring out which one of those move on to round two in this infinite tournament of everything. Oh yeah, that's right. Well, I think we should get right into it with our first two contestants in round one. Round one. In round one, we have Reitu, an Austronesian title used by male Fijians of chiefty rank against Letitia Kikanogo, who was a Ugandan lawyer and judge. Okay, we have two individuals, two competitors of very high rank one of uh fijian chiefdom and the other of chiefly lawdom so let's see which one shall prevail yeah we actually have a title against a lady with a bunch of titles so the Mm -hmm. ratu i think i'm pronouncing that right chiefly rank an equivalent title would be adi used by females of chiefly rank and in the Malay language, Malay, maybe, the title Ratu is also the traditional honorific title to refer to the ruling king or queen in Javanese culture. It's cool. They break down the word. Ra is a prefix in many titles. So there's Ramasi, Ramalu, Rasau. Uh, tu means simply chief. And uh, the formal use of Ratu in a title and a name, uh, was not introduced until after the session of 1874. Until then, a chief would be known by his birth name and his area-specific traditional title. The Fijian nobility consists of about 70 chiefs, each of whom descends from a family that has traditionally ruled a certain area. The chiefs are of differing rank, with some chiefs traditionally subordinate to other chiefs. Okay, so Fijian nobility consists of 70 chiefs, but uh, this is, we're talking about Fiji, right? Yeah, well, th- this this rank and title specifically in Fiji, it's the notability of Fiji, specifically this title. But Fiji is like a small place, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's an island, it's a pretty small island. Yeah, officially the Republic of Fiji. It's an island country in Melanesia, part of Oceania, in the South Pacific Ocean, about 1,100 nautical miles northeast of New Zealand. It consists of an archipelago of more than 330 islands. During the colonial rule, uh, the British kept Fiji's traditional chief structure and worked through it. So 
You know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, as they say. Um, and I believe that's what our other competitor, Leticia Kikongyalgo, would have said about the law herself. Looking at it a second time, I think it's Kikongyalgo, perhaps. Kikongyalgo sounds a lot better. I, I think you're right. You, you crushed it, Rob. Yeah, Kikongyalgo. So prior to her retirement from the bench, she was a member of the Court of Appeals of Uganda, which also doubles as Uganda's constitutional court. And while there, she served at the rank of Deputy Chief Justice of Uganda. Her first name is sometimes spelled as Letitia with a C or Letitia with a T. The Deputy Chief Justice of Uganda uh, was rated as the sixth most, most powerful person in Ugandan public life, uh, behind only the President, Vice President, Speaker of Parliament, Chief Justice, and Deputy Speaker of Parliament. She held various positions of responsibility in both the Catholic Church and the judiciary. She was the first Ugandan woman magistrate, grade one, in 1971 to 1973. Wow. And especially in Uganda, I think that's probably, you know, even more impressive. Yeah, and she did this, you know, it, it's not like, oh, she was a judge yesterday. She was a judge all the way back in the 70s. She attended Busabizi Girls Primary School. She then transferred to Trinity College of Nabingo for her O-level studies. She completed her high school education at King's College and passed her final A-level examinations. I, I like that in all of this, you know, up at the top, there's a little box that kind of sums up, you know, born, died, just the facts, you know, known for category. It just says the law. And that's pretty sweet. <laughs> well, you know what happens when you fight the law? The law wins every time. And I think it's going to be no different in this case. Letitia Kikinyogo, uh, I think you're going to be my choice to move on to the next round of what do you say, Rob? They fought the law, and the law won. Mm-hmm. Rat 2, uh, good to meet you. Uh, would love to go to Fiji and check you out, but Leticia Kikinyogo, you're going to be going on to the next round of... What a great way to start off the tournament. You know, I have the very same sentiment. Uh, two great competitors. I think it's just exactly in the spirit of this competition. I can't wait to get on to the next round, which is round two. It's time for round two. In round two, we have Fairfield Museum and History Center in Fairfield, Connecticut, against 1144, a leap year starting on a Saturday. Nice. <laughs> the I whole a, year. I have an early favorite just based on uh, on that. So um, I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but let's <laughs> right on in and uh, see if my pick's going to win this round. Fairfield Museum and History Center, named after the Fairfield Inn and Suites, that's not true, is located at 370 Beach Road in Fairfield, Connecticut. It was established in 2007 by the 103-year-old Fairfield Historical Society. The museum's vision is to use history to strengthen community and to shape its future. The 13,000-square-foot museum features exhibition galleries, a special collection research library, and a reading room, a family education center, an 80-seat theater overlooking Fairfield's Town Green and Museum Shop. 
They do uh, art and history exhibitions. So they've included the inaugural exhibit, Landscape of Change. It's a hit. Hometown view of our national pastime. Bravo. A century of theater. These all sound great. It's on the ocean, or at least really close to it, if I'm looking at the map correctly. It includes 1750 Ogden House, the Bronson Windmill, the Burr Homestead, the Sun Tavern, the Victorian Cottage and Barn, and the Powder House, an 1814 stone structure built to store ammunition in case of British attacks. I am still afraid the British might attack. They're coming, Rob. They're coming to get you. Fear the Queen. (laughs) The town of Fairfield owns several historic properties, uh, most of which you just mentioned, and they're actually managed by the museum. Um, uh, The museum itself has a lot of artifacts, and uh, they do different themed exhibits, as we've said. They got a couple pictures here. I see a musket from, uh, you know, with patriots and loyalists stuff. Uh, Yeah, it looks like it used to be in the olden days, a a really happening beach time spot in the summer. Pretty cool. You know, it definitely was in the olden days. The year 1144. Absolutely. You can't go back to the olden days without passing right by 1144. So we have just the year, and we have events by place. A lot of events in 1144. I guess we can just pick. uh, Let's see. March 8th, 1144, Pope Celestine II dies in Rome after being Pope for five months. See, in the summer in Europe, Joffrey V, the fair, completes his conquest of Normandy. Um, (laughs) So that's fun. Can you imagine being any of the other Joffreys? Joffrey the ugly, Joffrey the not as pretty, Joffrey the homely. Come on, guys. Don't be mean. A lot of stuff happening this year. Now, uh, this year is only uh, the year 1144 in the Julian calendar. In other calendars, uh, it has different years. Uh, For example, in the uh, Bengali calendar, it's the year 555. Um, in the Coptic calendar, it's somewhere between 860 and 61. Uh, there's a whole bunch of others, which is pretty fascinating. I guess I didn't think that there were so many other calendars. Like, I, I guess I always think about it during, like, Chinese New Year. But I didn't realize all these other places have calendars. Ethiopia, there's a Hebrew calendar, a Hindu calendar, a Hallocene calendar, and... Igbo calendar, Iranian, Islamic, Japanese, Javanese, Julian, Korean, Mingo, Thai, Tibetan. I, I didn't know there were so many other calendars. Now, time is just a construct, okay? But all of ours time must come. Uh, some notable deaths in the year of uh, 1144, at least again as far as the Julian calendar is concerned. Uh, let's see, we've got Alfonso of Kupoa. I'm sure a whole bunch of people died that year. It was 1144, um, let's be honest. But, you know, some of them are mentioned here. I'm sure many are left out. Yeah, the first Earl of, Su- of Essex is mortally wounded by a stray arrow received in a skirmish. Because he's an outlaw, his burial is denied at the monastery that he himself founded. Wow. You know, sometimes... A story will surprise you. Sometimes a character will surprise you. 
And uh, very frequently, this competition will surprise you. And that's why I love it so much. 1144, uh, you're good. You're great. But we have indeed moved on. And having read through your summary here, you know, it seems like a like a fine year. But that Fairfield Museum and History Center, by golly, seems like a special place. Yeah, I would rather put my vote down for a place that celebrates the history instead of the very specific history of one year. They have an 18th century salt box house with period furnishings. That's got to be way better than probably most of the buildings from 1144. Yeah, actually, that, that's probably true. I don't know what a salt box house is, but I bet you're right. And uh, I'm going to throw my vote down for the museum. Rob, do you concur? Absolutely. Okay. Fairfield Museum and History Center. Uh, you have fared well in this round of the Ultimate Tournament of Everything. We'll be move, moving on to the next one. So we will see you there in a subsequent round of the Ultimate Tournament of for all of our friends listening at home, and if you're listening, you're probably one of our friends, there will probably be a second round once we get through the first round, which is every Wikipedia entry that has ever existed. So there's like almost 7 million Wikipedia entries, so we'll get there uh, a week or two, probably. And by a week or two, I mean probably never. But time is just a construct, and all moments are now. So you can check out every episode in a different dimension. Meanwhile, in this dimension, let's move on to round three. Three. It's time for round three. In round three, we have Wang Yufa, a lieutenant general in the People's Liberation Army Air Force of China, against Wormley, which may refer to Ralph Wormley Curtis, Caroline Wormley Latimer, Elizabeth Wormley Latimer, Catherine Prescott Wormley. And that is the entire Wikipedia page for Wormley. Okay, something very specific versus something very vague. Uh, let's see whether generalities or specificality will be the successful strategy in this round of the ultimate tournament of everything. Wang Yufa served as deputy political commissar of the Gangzhou military, Gangzhou, probably Gangzhou, Guangzhou, probably Guangzhou military region and political commissar of its air force. On September 30th, 2015, it was announced that he was being investigated for corruption and his case was handed over to military prosecutors. And I bet he had to face off against Tom Cruise. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Uh, he was removed from membership of China's top political advisory body. Um, and on September 30th of 2015, transferred to military procurator rates. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. That does not sound good. That sounds bad. Is he alive still? It doesn't say. <laughs> when you get disappeared in China, that's probably not a good sign oh if the chinese want him gone we're never going to find out where he went it's it's going to be difficult to find him so instead we should look at one of the wormleys maybe maybe we can pick one at random and they should act as a proxy for the wormley page does that sound fair 
I agree. Let's worm our way over to the other contestant. Now, we have a few options for whom we could be talking about. Um, I believe we should take all of them as a conglomerate. So let's dive right in. Uh, at the top of the list, we have Ralph Wormley Curtis, an American painter and graphic artist in the Impressionist style. He spent most of his life in Europe, where he was a close associate with his distant cousin, John Singer Sargent, and James McNeil Whistler. Okay. The next Wormley could possibly be Carolyn Wormley Latimer, uh, an American physiologist known for her studies of rigor mortis and the salivary glands, probably not at the same time. And uh, let's see, her popular science writings were widely read by women and girls. Next, we have Elizabeth Wormley Latimer, who is an English-American writer, both of original works and translations. This is, the Wormleys are really representing well today. And lastly, we have Catherine Prescott Wormley, an American nurse in the Civil War, author again, editor and translator of French language literary works. Her first name frequently spelled as Catherine with an A. So all four of these people were alive at the same time. Yeah, all alive at the same time, and three of them doing similar work. Wow. Maybe they were helping each other. Maybe we should be taking them all for as one person. I, I think absolutely we should. If you had four people helping you. Yeah. And you know what? There's even a Wormley College. A whole university of people helping you. You got, you know, like student interns and things like that. I think just for the, the level of help that the Wormleys has shown, the level of uh, commitment to what they're doing, the amount of work they're putting out, I think they are definitely going to have what it takes to move on. But it's hard to move on when you've been disappeared by the Chinese government. So I think our friend Wang Yufa is probably not going to be representing really well in round two. Yeah, uh, it's going to be tough. It's definitely going to be tough. Um, and less pleasant to read about. I like the possibilities, the, uh, you know, the unknown of the Wormley family. Um, maybe not even, maybe they're just four separate geniuses linked by a peculiar, uh, you know, coincidence. We'll never know until the next round of the ultimate tournament of everything where we will see. Do you concur, Rob? Absolutely. The Wormleys move on. Wormley, you're moving on to the next round of the Round four's coming. Four is coming. Ah, my round four is ready. In round four, we have Balanjong Pillar against Listed building listed buildings in Shipley, West Yorkshire. Holy cow. We've got a whole bunch of places versus one very specific place. Uh, let's see which one is going to have the staying power uh, to move on to the next round. The Bellinjong Pillar is a pillar established in 914 in the harbor of Bellinjong in the southern area of Sanar in Bali. It was established by King Sri Kassar Warmadawa, the first king of the Balinese Warmadawa dynasty, and bears a long inscription where the king describes his military campaign on the island. 
Yes. Uh, these inscriptions reveal an Indo-Balinese society that was independent of Java, used a dialect peculiar to the island, and practiced Buddhism and Shivaism at the same time. The inscription was published by W.F. Stutterheim, whose translation was reproduced by Rilof Goris, taking into account corrections by Louis Charles de May. As follows, Sadly, so much of the writing is damaged that it's difficult to gain a clear sense of the text's meaning. So we have a story here that was very important inscribed into a pillar, and some of it might be lost to history forever. And they have it broken down here line by line, uh, and some of the lines are clearly marked as illegible. Um, but it basically sounds like this is, you know, a, a, a pillar, a stone structure into which they've carved this very long and I'm, I'm assuming very important uh, statement. Yeah, there, there's some argue that mix of language and script suggests that the objective of the inscription was not to communicate locally to the people there, but rather to establish a symbol of power and authority. Oh. It does talk about successive military expeditions against enemies in two other places, so that it's that's possible that that's exactly what it would be there for. So this was made in 1914, but then only rediscovered in 1932. Huh. What do you make of that? Well, it, it sounds like the people who put it there were so powerful that more powerful people came around and then forgot about them. But the pillar remained. Let's see if our other contestant is still sticking around. Uh, the listed buildings in Shipley, West Yorkshire. Now, excluding the listed buildings of the model village of Saltaire, which are subject to a separate list, this list uh -huh. contains 14 listed buildings that are recorded in the National Heritage List of England. Okay, so these this isn't just a list of all of the buildings in Shipley. These are special buildings that have been put on a list of special buildings. Yeah, the listed buildings consist of a farmhouse and a barn, houses, churches, and associated structures, a canal bridge in a warehouse, mill buildings, including a chimney, and a war memorial. All right, yeah, it looks like a bunch of places, a bunch of bricks, some towers. Um, almost looks castle-y, uh, big churches, things like that. Uh, they've got a couple different grades of buildings. There's uh, grade two, star. Uh, there's a couple of three grades. Uh, there's a couple of lower grades. Um, you know, I didn't realize that there was such a rating system for historic buildings. I thought once you were historic, like, hey, everyone's in the club, you know, history club. But now, you know, you've got to you got to rank those within two. Yeah. So the, the two grades are two of the star, which are particularly important buildings of more than special interest, extra special interest, you could say. And two without a star, buildings of national importance and a regular special interest. How many stars do you think that the Belenjong pillar would be given? Ooh, I think it would be given two because it's it's historical, but we don't yet know why it's important. No star. No well, star. No star. Okay. It's it's similar yeah, to the the war right. memorial. Which is only a portion of the town. 
Yeah, but the rest of the town, not worth scoring. Okay, so we seem to be at an impasse where we don't want to choose either of these. Mm -mm. This might be our very first tiebreaker to figure out which of these is least bad. All right, I think that's a great idea. Let's move on to it. Time for a tiebreaker. Tie That's right. And you know how we break ties here. We cook a whole turkey, throw the meat in the freezer, find the wishbone, break it, and whichever one gets the biggest piece gets to choose which one, in this case, does not move on to the next round of the ultimate tournament of everything. I only cook a whole turkey once a year, and we're not near that time. So instead, why don't we pick a number between 1 and 1,000? And I think it's only fitting that for Balanjong, that number be 914. And for the list of buildings in Shipley in Yorkshire, that number be 2. Well, shouldn't it be 14 because there's 14 listed buildings? We can go with 14. Yeah, 14 and then 914, right? Yeah, I like that, and it takes all responsibility and ownership off of us. So, roll that fancy dice. 667, which means that the Balanjong Pillar moves on, survives. Standing tall into the next round is the Balanjong Pillar. The ultimate I mean, don't let it go to your head, right? Like, clearly it was going to be one of you, and neither one of you truly <laughs> deserves to be in there, but hey, you made it. I mean, maybe they both deserve to be in there, but you're going to want to come to the next round with probably a full translation, and probably for the uh, for Shipley, maybe an arcade or something like that. Yeah, pick a fun building, would you? Yeah. Speaking of fun, let's move on to round five. Round five. In round five, we have Takahiro Kimura against Arya Pangiri. Person against a person. Ooh, very exciting. Two individuals, born, lived, and we don't know if they've died yet because we haven't gotten into the article. So let's see which one we find they're living and to that whole time that we're discussing there to have been worthy of moving on to the next round. Takahiro Kimura is a former Japanese football player born April 4th, 1957 and currently still living. He was born in Fuchu in Hiroshima on April 4th, 1957, and after graduating from Waseda University, he joined his local club, Mazda, in 1983 and retired five years later. After retirement, he started coaching at Senfreka Hiroshima in 1995, uh, became an assistant coach for the top team and manager for the youth team, eventually in 2002 promoted to manager as uh, the previous one's successor, but he did resign end of season. His overall win-loss record, he's 46.1%, which is a little worse than a coin flip, which would not be a great record as a coach. Okay, but in soccer, there are a lot of ties, so I'm sure that it's not quite the same as, like, bowling. His highest winning percentage was actually the uh, the time he quit, 
percent win percentage. It's fan- Ooh, wow. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Absolutely. Speaking of fantastic and going out on top, let's talk about our other contestant, Arya Pangiri, the Duke of Denmark, who succeeded in becoming the second king of Pajan Sultanate and ruled from 1583 to 1586. I'm going to jump in with a correction. Not that we do that often because we're wrong most of the time, but it's Damak, not Denmark. Ah, yes, you are correct. I didn't think Denmark's, Denmark had a king, but then I don't really know. No, no, Hamlet. Oh, he's the prince. Oh, he's the prince of Denmark. If there's a prince, there's a king. If there's smoke, there's fire. And uh, I think we should keep on learning what else is burning in the life of Arya Pangiri. He was the son of Sunan Prawado, the fourth king of Damak, who was killed by Ranguti, a Jipang soldier who was very loyal to Arya Penningskang in 1547. He was raised by his aunt in Japara. Let's see. The fifth king was killed by rioters. Um, and then he be. Uh, let's see. Then Pajang became a sovereign kingdom in which Damak is subordinate. Um, as an adult, Arya Pangiri was married to the eldest daughter of Hadiwajaya and became the Duke of Damak. I don't think you want to be in any leadership position in Damak. This, it sounds like it doesn't end well. Yeah, it, uh, I don't see how, let's see. how long are these people ruling here? Oh, looks like he he only ruled from 1583 to 1586. It's not a long tenure. Three years. Mm. Okay. Well, he he at least uh, he was appointed prince as king after the death of the other king. Okay, so he wasn't killed or murdered, at least not in the article. So that's good. But he was alive a long time ago. Doesn't say how he died. Maybe just kind of falls into obscurity after he becomes a duke. Yeah, you know, a lot of dukes tend to just ride off into the sunset. Um, and, you know, Takahiro Kimura was really no different. He had that very successful season, and uh, he decided, hey, top of my game, top of the sport, top of the world, uh, what else can you do? Uh, obviously, there was a kingdom that uh, Arya was in. He never quite made it to the top. But Takahiro Kimura, I think you are tops. And I think you're going to be my selection to move on to the next round of... The Ultimate How are you feeling? I absolutely think he should move on, if only because he had a longer and more successful career. Um, definitely longer. He had he had that one that one winning season. He had that one winning season, but overall he was still like under five hundred. But I don't know how. I mean, how did I don't know what his legislative score would have been, but doesn't I know matter. What his ultimate tournament of everything is it's Owen one because Takahiro Kimura. Kimura, you are 1-0, and we're moving on to the next round of... The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. 
sometimes you got to scroll all the way back up to the top of the article. Let's get into round six. And down to the left, you'll find scenic round six. Round six. As everyone knows, round six is brought to you from the future. In round mm-hmm. six, we have Neoburgia kalina, a species of plant endemic to Fiji against Clan Donachid. I think it's Chid. There's like an XY thing in there, also known as Clan Robertson. Way easier to pronounce. It's Scottish. We have one contestant endemic to Fiji, one endemic to Scotland. Let's see which nation's natural competitor will come out on top. I think we should start with the clan because I literally read the whole article for New Bergia Kalina in the intro. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so let's dig on in here. Also known as the Clan Robertson or Duncan, uh, it's a Scottish clan. Uh, two main theories as to the origin. One is that the founder of the clan was the second son of Angus MacDonald, Lord of the Isles. And second, that the Robertsons are lineal descendants of the Celtic Earls of Athol, whose progenitor was King Duncan I. The clan's first recognized chief, Stout Duncan, son of Andrew de Atholia, was a minor landowner and leader of a kin group around Dunkeld. Dunkeld? Dunkeld. Highland Perthshire, and as legend has it, enthusiastic and faithful supporter of Robert I, a.k.a. Robert the Bruce, during the wars of Scottish independence. Oh, yeah. Yeah, looks like they were definitely one of those uh, clans that was out there trying to keep Scotland, Scotland, uh, you know, keep the queen out. Yeah, but really, does the queen need to own everything? I don't think everything. so. Everything? I mean, it's everything. Uh-huh. Come on. Uh-huh. Um, you know, they had a bunch of castles here. They have a bunch of tartans that they're shown here. Um, golly, whole bunch of history going all the way through. Um, just... A whole lot. It's hard to pick anything to really mention. Um, a lot of battles, uh, a lot of descendants, but it uh, seems like a pretty strong clan. Now, the clans had profiles. The motto of the clan, glory is the reward of valor. Their slogan, fierce when roused. Their crest, a dexter hand holding up an imperial crown. They had specific pipe music, even. You know what's fierce when roused? It can't be that plant. Oh, it's definitely this plant. You see, the it's a member of the Longinacea family, a uh, family of flowering plants classified in the order of Gentianellis. Um, you know, its family includes up to 13 genera. Um, plant is described as... <laughs> Photosynthesis eukaryotes of the uh, kingdom plantae. All right, you're right. There's nothing else here. And this clan sounds pretty awesome. So I'm not going to dawdle anymore. And I'm going to throw my vote down for a clan Donna Chate. We'll just go with Robertson, right? Robertson. Sounds kind of British of us. Well, okay. I don't mean to offend them, but they win. They're the winners. All right, yes. Oh, and look at that awesome 
emblem up there. A uh, hand holding up an imperial crown proper. Yes, it's super great. Glory is your reward of valor, clan that we've mentioned here, uh, because you're moving on to the next round of... The ultimate Every once in a while, you have a plant that just can't hold their own. Today was that day. You know, you just can't be family. Thank you, Groot. Moving on to round <laughs> seven. Round seven. Round seven. Round seven. Round seven. In round seven, we have a really big fighting group, the Nelson Battalion of Militia against... Bhagawatapur, a village development committee in Nepal. Okay. Uh, we've got the fighters versus uh, the people that look like they're in a community in Nepal. So let's see which one's going to come out on top in this peaceful round of the ultimate tournament of everything. No violence in this round now. Well, when you involve the New Zealand Army, I think violence is always the solution. So the Nelson Battalion of Militia was formed August 12, 1845, under the terms of the Militia Act, also of 1845. This made the Nelson Battalion of Militia the first army unit to be formed in the South Island, and indeed, one of the first in New Zealand. Okay, so we're talking about, like, one of the first groups that made up New Zealand's army? Yeah, yeah. So the Militia Act enabled the governor to form local militia units in a district that was under threat of hostile actions or emergencies. All males between 18 and 60, excepting judges, members of the Legislative Council, Maori, and clergymen, were expected to make themselves available for 28 days of service per year. It's basically like the National Guard. And these militia units were only permitted to operate within a 25-mile radius of their settlement. So mainly used for garrison duties, guarding the settlement, basically. That's kind of neat. Um, they gave them all nice uniforms, a blue shirt of sailor-type pattern, cap and trousers of any type, though. You could wear any type of trousers you like. Um, armaments was an old flintlock musket, um, weapons that had originally been imported for bartering with the Maori. That's believed that the Nelson militia had fifes and drums to provide them with musical support. Not just firearm support, musical support. Sometimes, even in the midst of war, you gotta get down. Well, that's actually one of my favorite little random tidbits of fact, is that they play K-pop across the DMZ between North and South Korea as, like, warfare. It's hilarious. What type of music do you think that they play in Bhagawatapur? Uh, Nepalese music? Yes, I think that's a great guess. Um, this town at the end of the uh, 2011 Nepal census uh, was recorded with a population of 5,022 people living in 968 individual households. So uh, that actually, that math just strikes out to me, though. You know, these are family people. Yeah, those, those, are, those are bigger numbers than we've seen in other rounds. Yeah. That's fantastic. I wish we could see it. Yeah. So th this article doesn't have a whole bunch in it, but I will. I am going to put a strike against uh, them right off the bat. The article uh -huh. from Nepal 
calls Tibet Tibet of China. I got a problem with that. It's just Tibet. It's not China's. Sorry, China. You can't have it. It's just Tibet. Get over it. Well, well, shoot. It's a pretty sweet place. And this Nelson Battalion, you know, it seemed important. I'm sure they were great. Um, but still just kind of, you know, fighting dudes. You know, they, they were probably doing a lot of protecting. I don't know, but. War is never the answer. And I love me a little community in Nepal. So I'm going to throw my vote down for Bhagawatspur. I'll agree with you. I went out to the Google machine and pulled up some pictures. It looks like a very quaint place. And I think it would be one of those places that would represent Tibet and Nepal really well going forward. Now, like Nepalese food is like really good. What type of food do they even have in New Zealand? Like, what's a New Zealand food? I I don't know, and my dumb American would be showing if I were to guess. Hmm. Fish and chips? Well, maybe, maybe we'll learn that in the next round, which will definitely be including Bhagwat Poor, because you're moving on to the next round of... <laughs> well done, you scrappy little town. Little towns do really, really well. Yeah, you know, it's because they band together. You know, they form a team, and uh, they're united with one vision. And that vision is the next round of the Ultimate Tournament of Everything. And tonight, Rob, do you know what our next round is? Is it round eight? I see. Would you by chance have any round eight? Round eight! In round eight, we have Tambo McKay against Officinalis. All right. This is a very particularly interesting round because just from hearing it, I have no idea what either of these two things are, and so I'm having trouble even coming up with something to say. Tambo McKay, uh, possibly... From Kuchu Tampuin, Guest House, or Makay, Drunkenness to Get Drunk, or Sprindle with Thread. It's an archaeological site associated with the Inca in Peru. Uh-huh. Consists of a series of aqueducts, canals, and waterfalls that run through the terraced rocks. Let's see here. It's situated near springs, such as one called Timpuk Pukuyu a boiling spring on the northern bank of the Timpuk River. Um, these natural springs were channeled through three waterfalls that still flow today. It's got staying power. That's impressive. Yeah, staying power going back to the Inca, um, which I don't have the time frame for, but that was quite a long time ago. It is located in Peru in the Cusco district, the district specifically for Cusco. <laughs> I mean, it looks like these are, are like old stone structures, ancient, uh, you know, stone establishments, probably long abandoned, but uh, they're still there. You know, people used to live and work. And apparently, since it was called, uh, you know, one of its names is to get drunk and the other was to spindle with thread. 
we can just extrapolate that people would sit there eating some sort of ink and liquor, or drinking that rather, and uh, sewing things of great beauty. Yeah, they're not exactly sure what the site was used for. Could have been a military outpost. Could have been an imperial bath for the political elite. Could have had a religious function, since there are sacred water fountains in almost all of the other Incan temples. Cool. Very cool. Um, but is it as cool as officinalis? Uh, a medieval Latin epithet denoting organisms, mainly plants. Uh, so it commonly occurs. Uh, well, I mean, what are we even talking about here? Are we talking about a really broad term, just a whole wide category? Yeah, we're talking about the word, the etymology of the word, and some of the species it describes. Holy cow, it could not get any broader than this. The word literally means of or belonging to an officina, the storeroom of a monastery where medicines and other necessities were kept. Officinalis is used to modify masculine and feminine nouns, while officinale is used for neuter nouns. When Linnaeus invented the binomial system of nomenclature, he gave this specific name, officinalis, in 1735, in the first edition of his Systema Nature, to plants, and sometimes animals, with an established medicinal, culinary, or other use. Okay, so... This is a classification, we're talking Latin, um, just of, of entities, of things that exist, of creatures, uh, just a way to organize them and name them, yeah? Yeah, a way to name them that way right off the bat you knew if they had a medicinal or food use, such as the marshmallow, bug gloss, asparagus, porridge, quinine, scurvy grass, uh, watercress, or even ginger. Very nice, very nice, and very handy. Um, again, they don't label things, you know, in the wild, so you still have to know what they are and what they're called, but it's good that they had something assigned to them. It's actually so good that uh, I think if we were going to pick one to move on, I was really on the uh, the historical site for Cusco, but Fisinalis. I think I got to go with you. I think as the article went on, I learned more, and I got way curious, and that's that's part of the show that I like. Are you going to make a Fissionalis official? Absolutely. Rob's putting down his vote. <laughs> and I'm going to vehemently disagree. Uh, look at these ancient structures. They're still there. You can look at these pictures here and just picture life teeming up and down these stony steps in and out of these stone doorways uh the life the stories they're almost unimaginable other than that i'm kind of imagining them right now and then that's why tambu che uh you are my choice to move on to the next <laughs> so here we find ourselves pick your number and be prepared to lose Time for a tie-breaker. Do I have anything here giving me a number to pick? Speak to me, Tom Baumbache. I don't see anything, and that's why I'm going with the number 737. 
737, the airplane of the Incan Empire. Mm-hmm. Fly high. I am going to go with the number 735. <sighs> you beast. 740. <laughs> hey, now. By the skin of your teeth, Tambamache, you are narrowly moving on to the very next round of... Couldn't have been any closer than that. Not at all. Well, I believe we've found ourselves at that very special place. We found ourselves here and now. It's about time round nine. In round nine, we have Ding Yi Music Company, established in 2007, a Chinese chamber orchestra based in Singapore, against the George Moss Fund, which is a Dutch foundation that aims to promote gay and lesbian studies. All right. Got two really fun competitors in this round. Uh, George Moss Fund sounds super fun. Uh, Ding Yi Music Company sounds super fun. Uh, let's see what's going on here. The Ding Yi Music Company consists of both full-time and part-time musicians, most having attended professional training at the Nanyang Academy of Fine Arts. The ensemble's repertoire ranges from traditional Chinese music to contemporary avant-garde interpretations and cross-genre works. They've been named one of Singapore's most dynamic and successful ensembles, uh, and their performances are described as inspirational and aspirational, and their music invigorating and inspiring those are a bunch of really good adjectives very very good they've released two albums in 2011 fire phoenix and the oriental moon they released a new album storytellers on and sang road in 2016 wow they're just cranking out great music what sounds like great musicians Great concerts, great programs. Uh, seems like a you know, if you want to learn how to play music and you happen to find yourself uh, in Singapore, this seems like a pretty solid place to go and do so. They even do several public outreach and educational engagements to raise awareness for their music and the genre of Chinese chamber music. Some of these include the Feed Your Imagination collaboration with a different Singapore group and the Outdoor Fantasia concert series which brings Chinese chamber music to the mass public. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds spectacular. It sounds like a really good uh, time. Now, both groups here definitely try to inform the public, but about two different topics. The George Moss Fund aims to promote gay and lesbian studies, founded in 2001 at the University of Amsterdam, with a bequest from George Moss's inheritance, given out of appreciation for the cultural and historical education and research on homosexuality in Amsterdam, known primarily for its Moss lectures. So are, are these mostly in, is that German? Uh, Dutch. Dutch? Okay, they do have, uh, 
you know, translations in most of these, looking at the titles, um, homosexuality and Islam, um, transformation art, unsung muse, long live the penis envy. I mean, it, it sounds like a bunch of really uh, interesting presentations that they put on. I'm sure a lot of great information. Uh, and I'm not sure what's what's it what's that culture you know what's the climate for that culture like over in uh, Amsterdam. I I don't actually know. I I got to imagine that it's. I mean, they have they've been going on since 2002 with these lectures. Done them now. It does. The article does end in 2019, so I don't know if those have continued or uh, not. COVID. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It basically looks like TED Talks on a very narrow topic, right? Yeah, yeah, but important, especially in today's day and age. Um, big events, though, you know, and that's kind of a big thing, too, I think. Making it, uh, you know, when you're in a crowd, people that are at least seeking answers uh, or asking questions, you know, similar to the questions that you may be asking or be interested in, uh, that in itself is definitely good. Um, and that's also another reason to join the DE Music Company uh, if you're interested in music. So no matter what you're into, um, you know, there's always a community and there's always a support system. I think in this round, I think I'm going to have to give it to the Dingy Music Company just because of those great titles of those two first albums. The Fire Phoenix and the Oriental Moon. Is that really better than Long Live the Penis Envy? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Well, I think I would, in the end, though, uh, even, you know, regardless of the topic, I think I would rather go to a concert than a lecture, and I'm going to have to agree with you. So, Dingy Music Company, we're in concurrence. It's moving on? It's moving on. Ring-a-ding-ding-ye the bell. Music company, you're moving on to the next round of... The well, if you've enjoyed any of this random picking of articles off Wikipedia, listening to us flub pronunciations, talk about things that we know very little about, and maybe teach you something, you can find us here twice a week. That's right. Uh, we'll be here for the very next establishment of this round, prepping for the very next round of the Ultimate Tournament of Everything. Check out our shorts, the scouting reports, and be sure to send in any blast that you want to. Uh, your sound can get around if you send it to us. Any final words, Robert? I cannot wait for round two. Round two. The ultimate turn.